Gracious and eternal God, we would not presume to have your attention. Although we are used to being in charge more times than not and having our way more often than not, we would not stake such a position with you. More than laying our claims on you, a presumption from which we too often need forgiveness, we dare to enter into prayer only because you have risked entering into life with us. And that makes us humble and grateful. Indeed, you are the author of our lives and all of life. Were it not for your creative yearning, we would not be. You are a glad and generous God, and therefore we exist. Help us, O God, to never lose this perspective, to never lose this sense of your order and design. Indeed, you are the redeemer of our lives and all of life. Were it not for your merciful leanings, who of us could stand? You are a forgiving and restoring God, and therefore we can be reconciled. Help us, O God, to never take for granted your cruciform love, to never lose your sense of hope and communion. Indeed, you are the sustainer of our lives and all of life. Were it not for your resilient intention, we could not endure. You are a covenant-making and steadfast God, and therefore we are held in your love that will not let us go. Help us, O God, to see that while you are particular and personal, that only equates to our being exquisite, but not exceptional, empowered, but not exclusive. And so, gracious and eternal God, while we would not presume to have your attention, we are subsumed into and by your long mercy that transcends any category and transforms any condition. As we pray in the spirit of the reconciling one, Jesus the Christ, who prays alongside us as we in our many voices pray in one voice. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen. From Paul's letter to the Roman Church, the eighth chapter, beginning at verse 12. Paul writes, So then, brothers and sisters, we are debtors, not to the flesh to live according to the flesh, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. 
For all who are led by the Spirit of God are children of God. For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received a spirit of adoption. When we cry, Abba, Father, it is that very spirit bearing witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. If in fact we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. This is part of the sacred story that is God's story. Thanks be to God. If you have ever been asked to be the executor of a will or an estate, then you know there are responsibilities. The chief one being making sure you honor and implement the wishes of the person who has given you that responsibility. The executor, in essence, assures the presence of the one who has lived affirming the will, both the legal document and the intentional spirit of that person. It's a great responsibility. It's a great honor. And it can go smoothly. <laughs> or it can be contentious. And many are the contributing factors. What's most captivating about the entire process is to see who gets what and how much of it.
For those bequeaths reveal something of what has been deeply valued by the person and what that person wants to be his or her ongoing legacy, what that person wants to be continued in their name and on their behalf. A long time ago, the Apostle Paul wrote a letter to a church in Rome. We know it as Romans. And it reveals something of Paul and his sense of Christ, even as it addresses the particular issues and the particular needs of that Roman church. What is interesting in this part of the letter is the language he uses to talk about those who are followers of Christ. He wants them to know they are heirs. Their names are included in the will. Whether they realize it or not, God has adopted them as God's own children. And since they are God's children, they are the heirs of God's intentions for the world ever since the first word of creation was spoken and all the way to what Christ said is the way of God in this world. Paul is saying to the Roman church that Christ is the heir of God's will, and that's who we are as well. Our names are in the will. We are heirs because we are God's children. What's critical, and perhaps a better way to say it is absolutely astounding, is that being an heir is not something disciples do on their own, not something they do by achieving 10 goals for righteous living. Instead, they are in the inheritance because God has claimed them as God's own children. This is who they are because this is the way God wants it. Heirs, who are loved and empowered by God who claims them as children. Well, this is not likely news to many of us who are gathered here today. This is a place where we name and proclaim children as God's own. We say it in the opening sentences of the litany of dedication as a significant part of our gathering to worship God today, we recognize publicly your children as God's own gift to you and to the world. We have come to name them as belonging to the great family of our heavenly creator. Now, we didn't invent that idea because it sounds nice, although it certainly does sound nice. Instead, we're listening to Paul to what he says about who we are, children of God, that makes us heirs. And that may well sound familiar to many of us. A couple of months ago on a quick trip to Waco, going through some old family albums, I found a certificate of enrollment into the cradle roll department of Columbus Avenue Baptist Church. Before I had any idea of what was going on, I was being claimed by the church on behalf of God as God's child. 
There are many here who might identify with that, many who have grown up in the lap of Jesus, in the care of Christ's church, because as we say in the dedication liturgy, the journey of life begins in the midst of congregational blessing. There are those who know they have always been in, never doubted their place as heirs. So maybe this does not sound all that important or special until, of course, you spend time around those who never felt they were included, who never knew their names were in the will, who never knew they were heirs. Years ago, in a worship service at the Methodist Children's Home in Waco, there was a very touching moment. Originally, the Methodist home was an orphanage, but over the years it had changed to become a place where children who, for whatever reason, could not be at home with their families. Sometimes there were issues of safety for the children. Sometimes there were issues of economic struggle for the family. Sometimes there were legal problems. The hope was that these children who ranged in age from about 5 to 18 years old would be able to return home. Suffice it to say that while the Methodist home was a sanctuary for children, it was a difficult time in their lives. And it was a tough congregation to preach to. One Sunday, the minister was preaching about the love of God, and most of the children and teens were doing what they did most every Sunday, tolerating the service. But then, the minister took a little baby in his arms, and he held the child. And he talked about the ways in which God claims each one of them as children. Even if the world rejects them, God still holds them. God still loves them. And it grew very, very still in the chapel. And some of the children had quiet tears coming down their cheeks. And amazingly, some of the adults did also. Paul wants us to know, no matter who we are and where we have come from, and no matter what others have said about us or to us, we are heirs because God claims us as God's own children. What Paul is saying to the Roman church is as dramatic as that moment in the Methodist home chapel. It was the general experience to be nothing, nothing more than a very ordinary citizen in the Roman Empire, unless someone of power or prestige adopted you into their family. And at that point, you had worth and you had value. It was like hitting the lottery. 
Paul uses this analogy to say to the Roman church, you have been adopted by God. You are heirs. Your name is in the will. You are God's child, so be who you are. Paul knew of what he was speaking. For what happened to Paul on the road to Damascus, dramatic as it was, was not unique to Paul. He was being claimed by God, having his identity transplanted to be in Christ, which is Paul's favorite and most often used phrase. It's a gift. He's an heir. His name is in the will. And at first, he did not even know it. The saddest people of all are those who never knew or who have been convinced otherwise that their names are not included, that they are not adopted, that when God names the family, they are not welcomed. There are places in the Bible where we can read about that kind of sadness. The widow was in that group sometimes. The orphan was in that group. Women were often in that group. The poor were in that group. The unclean, the sick, the diseased, the foreigner. It's a sad thing. But sometimes life can convince a person that they do not belong, that they are not worthy, that they are relegated to somewhere outside the family circle. It can happen subtly, slowly, relentlessly, as one door after another gets shut, or it can happen quickly, resolutely, cruelly, you know how it happens. Well, you know, you just aren't quite the right material for people like us. Yes, of course that is life. We all go through it. But that does not make it any less dicey, especially if it happens to be the church that shuts the door, that closes the table, that creates the list of who is and is not family, forgetting that it is Christ who is the host, Christ who is the benefactor in the name of God's kind of love. In his book, Love and Death, Forest Church has written, gaze into the light of the heavens. By latest reckoning, with about 100 billion stars in about 100 billion galaxies, there are approximately 1,500 stars for every person on Earth, a ratio of 1,500 to one. That's awesome, and it counsels humility. It should certainly discourage the scourge of human pride, but it does not. Instead, we sit on this tiny, munificently fixtured rock, arguing over who has the best insider information on the Creator and the creation. Is it the Christian, the Buddhist, the atheist, the humanist, the theist? 
please. We human beings trumpet our differences, even kill each other over them. While in every way that matters, we are far more alike than we are different. Theologically speaking, we are certainly more alike in our ignorance than we differ in our knowledge. In fact, by the time we die, we will barely have gotten our minds wet. The wisest among us will have but the faintest notion of what life was all about. This counsels humility, but it also affirms oneness. Truly, we are one. The way Paul said it is that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. Now, a family like that is very large. If we have ever wanted to be a part of a large family, this is it. The heirs are more numerous than the stars in the heavens. And besides which, we aren't the ones writing the will. We are the heirs. So while it is not our concern to ask who is in the will, it is fair to ask what is in the will. What do the heirs inherit? What are the riches of God passed on for the heirs to embody? Well, it seems it would at least include mercy. If there is anything the children of God need in these days, it is mercy. Mercy to move through the losses, to move beyond the hurts, to move ahead into relationships healed and restored. What do the heirs inherit? It seems it would at least include a community. Faith, of course, is personal, but it's never private, isolating, or individualistic. The inheritance puts us into a community to care for one another, to support one another, to hold up one another, to give hope to one another. What do the heirs inherit? It seems it would include a cross, a way in which we are to be caring about each other's pain, Caring about the world in which we live. Caring about something beyond only self-interest. Another name for this inheritance is love. What do the heirs inherit? It seems that it would be a certain kind of joy that comes from finding a way to be meaningfully, courageously, creatively present to each other, come what may, along life's way, because we know that none of us gets through life unscathed. 
Have you heard the story of Marion Shepherd? Columnist Frank Bruni tells about her. She's a dance instructor who midway through her life lost her vision. She fought with all the resources that were available to her, but to no avail. And she was understandably depressed, downhearted. So one day she came to a decision. Either surrender to the darkness or learn to dance in the darkness. So she started dancing again. And at 73 years of age is now teaching others who have lost their vision, teaching them to dance. Bruni described her as fearless and limitless, and that seems an apropos description of the inheritance we have all received, courage for the day and hope for the day, because the Easter story proclaims that the will has been read and love is what is bequeathed, strength to keep on doing what God's children, joint heirs with Christ, are all called to do. Minister Griff Martin writes it this way, we need to remember that each new day gives us the same choice Marion had, fearful and limited or fearless and limitless. Will we surrender to the darkness? Or will we learn to dance the new song of resurrection? Choose to dance like the fearless, limitless, beloved child of resurrection that you are. That's who we are. Beloved heirs with the resurrected Christ. And thanks be to God, we get to dance God's grace. Because, well, it's in the will.